This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who's calling in from London. On this episode of EAH, we are delighted to have with us Martin Pei, Executive Vice President and CTO at SSAB. Dr. Pei is the initiator of the Hybrid Initiative, a cooperation between SSAB, LKAB, and Vattenfall and has served as the first chairman of the board for Hybrid Development AB. He is currently chairman of the board for the Swedish Research Institute of Mining, Metallurgy, and Metals Research. And Dr. Pei is also a member of the Royal Swedish Academy for Engineering Sciences. It's great to have Dr. Pei with us on the show, and we can't wait to jump into our conversation with him. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, guys. Well, uh, let's do a quick round of how's everybody doing. We'll start with Chris, as usual, because he's, you know, the one that always kicks us off on this front. Chris, how are you doing? How are things in London? All good. I see you've got a, a hard hat behind you, so it looks like you, you've uh, upgraded to uh, worksite clothing. Well, I mean, Protium's first uh, electrolyzer, a little 100 kilowatt Pioneer systems, actually finished all of its paintwork, and I think the integration work's almost finished, actually, so that's quite exciting. If we had an applause sound effect, we'd add it right there. Chris. You don't have the Teams features where everyone gets to see the little hands clapping up as you that's go. Right. So, um, that's right. But, uh, <laughs> no, so that's been exciting. Um, look, I mean, it's a bit of a crazy time in the UK, as it is, frankly, all over the world right now. I mean, the Ukraine stuff is is just fascinating from like a, you know, obviously pretty scary, but, you know, also just really disruptive for loads of stuff, right? So it's keeping everyone on their toes. Um, I don't know what the situation is like in the States because it's sort of, I get the impression, at least on the energy side, you're a little bit more isolated from from the worst of it. Over here, that's completely nuts. But I don't know what if it's as pronounced in the States. I don't know if it's I, I honestly don't know if it's as pronounced. I would say that, I mean, it is interesting that, you know, natural gas prices are set globally. Right. So even though the U.S. doesn't necessarily rely on a huge amount of imported or directly Russian uh, natural gas, the, the price is set globally. So regardless what's being felt here, maybe not as the, at the same extreme uh, that immediately flowed through to on the on the European continent and in the UK. But um, it's definitely filtering through. It's not not unnoticed. Patrick, how about you? How are you doing? Doing OK. Um, very excited today to talk to uh, to, to Martin from uh, from SSAB. Um, 
I'm, uh, I think we've been hoping to do this one for quite a while, but uh, otherwise, doing well. Andrew survived our mini snowstorm over the weekend here in DC, and that was close call though. Close call. Almost, it was almost two inches of snow. Almost. almost had to, yeah, almost had to abandon the city. It's nice to have another mining company coming in. I was going to say, Andrew, as well, just quickly before we let the team off, you guys are doing a wonderful PR job for New Mexico, right? Because I think not just um, the guys from Monolith moved there, but um, well, who was the other guy? There was another. There was another big hydrogen company that just announced it was moving. To Universal Hydrogen has, Universal uh, yeah. Hydrogen. Universal Hydrogen announced that they are uh, investing in a two hundred and fifty plus million dollar manufacturing facility in Albuquerque. So. Hydrogen is uh, not only taking off in uh, New Mexico because of biotech, but uh, others are joining the bandwagon. So we're the very excited is about the trendsetter, it. the cutting That's edge. right. That's absolutely right. We've we've known that all along. It's just everybody <laughs> else is now catching up, guys. Well, if anyone else is a governor of a state or uh, you know a leader of another country and wants to see the impact of the everything about hydrogen podcast, you know you know where to come That's find right. us. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. And what about you, Andrew? How are you, importantly, before we hand over? Good. Can't complain. Yeah, I was in Albuquerque last week for uh, for the executive order signing and announcement for the uh, Business Leaders Roundtable, which was exciting, and also where Universal Hydrogen made their announcement. So that was, uh, it was a big week. It was a big week. A lot of fun, and then uh, flew back for a snowstorm here, as Patrick mentioned, but all good. So on that note, Patrick... Uh, this is uh, one that you've been working on for quite some time. Why don't we uh, turn it over to you to do a quick intro of uh, Martin and SSAB? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, as I said, you know, SSAB, uh, Swedish steel manufacturing company, hugely prominent uh, in part because of the involvement in, in hybrid, but also as a very efficient steel manufacturer. So we have uh, Dr. Martin Pai from SSAB joining us. And he is the executive vice president and CTO of SSAB um, since 2007, has been um, one of the initiators of the, the hybrid initiative and uh, served the first chairman or term as chairman of the board of the hybrid development uh, AB. So, um, yeah, Martin's been right in the middle of this for, for quite a while and, and really, really looking forward to hearing Number one, how how they got there and and how they got down this path towards you know delivering zero carbon steel and also you know um, what that really means for the market as it starts to move forward. So it's going to be great. Really looking forward to it. Very cool. Well, I see he has joined the call, so let's uh, jump right in and see what Martin can tell us about green steel. So Martin, it's absolute pleasure to have you here. I think maybe just to start off, it'd be very useful for for our listeners to get a, a little bit of history about SSAB and and obviously hybrid as well, which is which is such a, a an important and a critically prominent uh, project. So yeah, maybe a little bit to just introduce it. Yes, hello everyone. Uh, SSAB is the largest steel company uh, in Sweden and Finland. Uh, it has a very long tradition. The first uh, activity that is still uh, part of our company dates back to 1850s. Uh, so we've been in the business for a very long time. Currently, SSAB's uh, steel production capacity is uh, approximately 9 million tons a year, which makes SSAB as a quite sizable steel company in Northern Europe. We are the largest one in the Nordic countries. We have, though, also 
two production facilities in the United States where SSA be acquired in 2007. And both the U.S. mills, one in Alabama and one in Iowa, are scrap-based mini mills, so where we make uh, currently about 2.5 million tons of uh, heavy plate products a year in the U.S. Uh, right now, SSAB is still the largest uh, heavy plate producer in the U.S. market, but that is soon going to change since some of other local steel companies are making investments in that business segment. In the Nordic countries, SSAB runs uh, blast furnace-based process. We have currently five blast furnaces in operation, three in Sweden and two in Finland. This uh, Blast furnace mills we have in Sweden, Finland, are among the most efficient ones worldwide in terms of uh, uh, production efficiency. If you look at the uh, fuel consumption we have per ton of steel we make. And that one of the reasons why that is uh, uh, we did together with LKB back in the beginning of 1980s, a significant step change in the production technology. When we jointly developed uh, the blast furnace pellets, very high quality iron ore pellets that we use in our blast furnaces. That development work was very successful, which led to shutting down of sinter plants that normally blast furnace mills have. Uh, we shut down all of our sinter plants. LKB invested in pelletizing capabilities in their iron ore mine, mining sites. So with that combination, our current production technology using the blast furnace route emits about 1.6 mil, uh, ton of carbon dioxide per ton of steel we produce. If you look at the similar technology used worldwide, the average emission per ton of steel produced emits more than two tons of CO2. And our current level is 1.6. So that is one of the background why SSAB was the first steel company to move towards next technology breakthrough. So, so that is uh, the starting point of uh, this journey. Looking at uh, uh, the, the, uh, the start of the hybrid initiative, Sweden is uh, a country that's quite unique in a sense that currently this Swedish energy mix, electricity mix is uh, almost fully decarbonized. And Sweden has also today an excess of uh, electricity production capacity. So Sweden currently exports about 10% of its own electricity production to surrounding countries. And Sweden is uh, the country in the European Union that has a modern iron ore industry, as LKB's iron mining uh, facilities. So that gives us uh, an interesting starting point. Back in 2015, before the final negotiation of the Paris Agreement, Sweden was, as a country, discussing internally how to set the climate goals. And Sweden was uh, about to set this, uh, t which later became the Swedish climate law that aimed at 2045 latest to become a fossil-free welfare nation. In that discussion, uh, it was quite clear for us that HSAB needs to take a significant step to cut our emissions. Otherwise, Sweden would not be able to reach that goal. So that was uh, the, 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 the point where we suggested uh, to partner with LKV and Vattenfall and created the hybrid initiative and with the aim of phasing out coal that is used in the steel production technology and basically rely on water electrolysis and uh, electricity comes from the Swedish 
fossil free electricity grid. So that, that's really the, the, the starting point of the hybrid initiative. Maybe just quickly, what was your personal um, interest in this? You know, obviously, uh, you know, every project needs a champion, an ambassador for it that uh, sticks their neck out when everyone thinks they're crazy and makes it happen. So why why were you keen to be involved in this project? Yes. Um, interesting background is that I, uh, I'm a metallurgist uh, in education uh, and I, I uh, uh, graduated from the uh, Royal Institute of Technology here in Stockholm, where I got my PhD degree. So I, I have been working all my my life with uh, filmmaking technology development and very early, very much involved in the development work that SSAB have been participating since a long time back within the European uh, research community. So before we launched Hybrid, SSAB together with LKB were participating quite ex- actively in the European Union's research program called ULCUS, uh, where uh, different uh, technology rules were evaluated. And we even participated uh, very actively in making research work of testing with a CCS approach uh, connected to a a black furnace uh, process. Uh, So I was uh, quite earlier aware that we need to find an alternative way to continue with the glass furnace process if we want to address the CO2 emission issue by taking care of the root cause. Because if we continue with the current glass furnace technology and um, build the CCS technology around that, we will end up in a situation where this route will not cut emissions uh, deep enough. That's number one. Number two is that we will need to continue to reinvest in current fossil-based technology. And on top of that, every year, take care of this uh, capture CO2 emission. So from the metallurgical perspective, we all know that uh, hydrogen can do the reduction job for reducing iron ore and steel. Earlier attempts never succeeded to make this to a scale large enough to apply it on industrial scale. And that was uh, the, the reason why I suggested that we should explore this uh, uh, technology. So we created a hybrid initiative and got uh, very strong support from our partners. And we uh, put in a huge amount of uh, R&D resources. Uh, and currently, we have come to a point where we believe that this is uh, possible to scale up. And I, I think that sets up perfectly that that second question we have for you there, Martin, which is uh, which is what has inspired the focus on the hydrogen pathway for decarbonization? What's what's brought you guys to to think? I mean, you guys are leading the industry by by your first by the hydrogen hybrid project and by your first pilot projects and your announcements around utilization of hydrogen. What is driving that concentration on hydrogen technologies? Yes, if you think about uh, uh, cutting emissions, uh, the, the use of hydrogen for uh, metallurgical processes and reducing agent replacing carbon, uh, that is used for anode reduction. That is where hydrogen gets the most value for those molecules. Uh, and with the, with the hybrid uh, uh, concept, uh, think about the future electricity grade especially with uh, wind power, solar, and so on, which is uh, intermittent. Uh, and we were quite early 
clear that if you can com combine the spawn drying reduction steel making process with the electricity grid with hydrogen as a buffer, that creates uh, economy of scale. We believe that uh, can really make uh, the economic uh, calculation work. Uh, so it was a, a fundamental belief that uh, this uh, approach can create a possible industrial setup. Uh, of course, to do that, we really need to show that uh, technology-wise, both in terms of uh, iron reduction at large scale, uh, not only laboratory, but uh, industrial scale works, which we have now come to some, uh, we can talk about later, milestones and so on. And the second aspect is really to explore the technology of storing hydrogen in large quantities, which makes uh, the combination of uh, the future electricity grid and uh, the steel making process can work together, create a synergy so we can have a, a situation where we can make these uh, justified. And so Martin, thank you very much for, for going through that. I mean, getting a little bit maybe more into the technical, which you know is something you obviously expressed as was a personal strong area of interest. And you made the point that um, previous attempts to look at hydrogen, you know, you, you hadn't quite seen that it could work at scale. So can you just give our audience a little bit of an overview of what do we mean by the DRI process? So what actually is that? You know, let's do this in layperson's yeah. terms. Um, why is hydrogen relevant to that? And then asking the stupid question, because our listeners can't, do you use oxygen? And if you do, why do you, would you use the oxygen from the process? Okay. So um, right now we can, uh, if you look at the steel industry worldwide, steel can be made from iron ore, or it can be made by recycled scrap. So that's the uh, first important as steel is a, a good construction material, uh, very much uh, uh, depending on its own properties, but also that it can be recycled on and on again. The question we have today is that the world's steel consumption per capita has been continuing increasing. So only relying on recycled scrap is not enough. So every year we need to add steel produced from virgin iron ore sources. So that is, uh, say, Fact number one, which is important to remember. And today, making steel from iron ore is mainly done by two established processes. One is uh, the blast furnace process, which uh, we are currently using. And worldwide, there, every year we make about 1 billion ton of steel in this way. We're using the blast furnaces, using coal and coke as a reducing agent, which emits a huge amount of uh, carbon dioxide. There is an alternative process today established that works quite well. Uh, that's using natural gas. In the blast furnace process, we get uh, iron ore in this huge blast furnace facility with the coal as a reduction agent. We get a liquid iron as a product. Intermittent product, which contains about 4% of carbon. This iron contains some carbon. And that goes on for steel making, where we use oxygen to oxidize carbon from this uh, liquid hot metal, we call it. And then we get the steel. We can then cast and roll and uh, treat uh, to make uh, uh, final products. So that's where in the current process is uh, quite a large amount of oxygen that is used for steel making. Um, in the, in the uh, scrap-based process, which we use uh, electro-arc furnace, take care of recycled scrap, make steel. In that process, we use also 
oxygen because uh, we need to refine steel. We need to add some uh, carbon into the electrolyte furnace and we blow oxygen to make a final uh, say, but much less than this blast furnace based BOF process. So that's all the ma ba basic steel making rules today. And then in the, what I mentioned, the DRI route using natural gas, which is uh, established today, worldwide every year, about 100 million tons of steel is made using this DRI route. And that route works in the, in a way that the reactor is different from the blast furnace. In the DRI production process today, used using natural gas. Natural gas is used to reduce iron ore, and the temperature is much lower than in the blast furnace. So the intermittent product from the DRI route is a solid uh, spawn drive, which is uh, then used in an electric arc furnace together with recycled scrap to make steel. As I mentioned that uh, used this natural gas-based process today accounts for about 100 million tons annually produced worldwide. And the reason for not, uh, say, uh, having more of that route is uh, the limited availability of natural gas. So the hybrid route thought is to modify this uh, natural gas-based DRI process. Instead of using natural gas, we want to use uh, pure hydrogen. And hydrogen can be made by water electrolysis. So that is the, the, the fundamental thinking of hybrid uh, process. Perfect. And so I think that that brings up the, the next perhaps obvious question, Martin, but I think, uh, you know, obviously one of the most important as well, right? The steel process involves a lot, a steel making process involves a lot of energy. That means a lot of natural gas. That means naturally a lot of hydrogen to replace that feedstock as, as part of the manufacturing process. So how are, how are you guys looking at supply sources? What is that, you know, how are we talking about scaling and reaching that, that supply threshold that you guys will need for, for, for this project and for future projects as you expand? Yes. So the, the major question is really how to replace coal that we currently use for steel making uh, with hydrogen and essentially is uh, electricity that we need. Uh, because we, we are only in our concept thinking of using uh, what would be called the green hydrogen so that we really build uh, a, a large scale electrolyzer plants that we can produce hydrogen locally so we can then integrate with electricity grid. Uh, so, so that's uh, essentially is to phase out the fossil energy that we use today for steel making and go over to using locally produced electricity. For the case of Sweden, this is uh, already today uh, realistic because Sweden has uh, already today a surplus of electricity production. And also the country is quite large and, and especially in the northern part of the country, especially winter time is uh, actually quite good winter uh, wind conditions. So our evaluation shows that if we do this in northern part of Sweden, this actually can create quite interesting dynamic because iron ore resources are in the north and in north of the country there is already today a surplus of electricity uh, generation. So if we can continue to build up further wind electricity generation capacities, this can be done to transform SSAB's current production system into this hybrid concept. 
uh, it's not done overnight, but we believe that in the coming decade, this is possible. So, Martin, I kind of want to pick up on a little bit of a theme, actually, that touches into that. And it's slightly, again, I'm going off piece on the question list, but Sweden, right? Why, why Sweden, to some extent? You've touched on aspects of it, but there's two thoughts, I guess, as an observer, I would have, and I'd be interested to get your view on it. So is Sweden interesting because you already have uh, customers, frankly, who will pay the premium? I mean, you saw that Volvo obviously said, you know, we want to build fossil-free cars and, you know, Sweden has some quite high carbon taxes. So is part of the reason for being in Sweden that actually you just have a willing customer market that could absorb a cost premium? So that's question one. And I guess linked to that question two, do you also find that given sort of Sweden and Norway's work around like aluminium, right? And I'm thinking Norse Hydro, where there's that understanding of huge amounts of power that has to be managed with an industrial mining and refining process, that actually the regulatory environment and the, the interface between business and government is quite good already in understanding how do you build massive power infrastructure to support industry and managing the the power demand of the industrial process while also keeping the grid stable. So you've got those two blocks and that kind of makes Sweden a great place to try this. Is that fair or is there something more to it than that? Yes, I think you're uh, quite right in the in the uh, in this uh, underlying uh, logic. Uh, for the first, uh, your first uh, aspect is uh, really true that uh, Sweden and uh, overall in Nordic countries, also in Finland and, uh, and Norway and, uh, for that part, this part of the, say, uh, northern part of Europe uh, has been very earlier in uh, taking it seriously of uh, reducing emissions and uh, taking uh, seriously of uh, the threat of uh, uh, climate change. So the whole society is much more focused on uh, really promoting this uh, transition. Uh, and Sweden and, and Norway, of course, is uh, another example uh, has uh, been very early in, uh, in electrifying the whole society. Uh, so, for example, the, the, the system of district heating and the electrification of houses, everything, Sweden is very far. So, so, so that's uh, one aspect. The other is uh, really the, the customer base. So SSAB has been focusing extremely uh, hard in the uh, last few decades in upgrading uh, to higher strength uh, steel products. And that, uh, say, business driver has been there for a long time. In the past, this was mainly to develop uh, steel that uh, has, is a stronger, that can be used for making like trucks or cars lighter. And in that, we can make our customers' uh, products consuming less fuel. So that has been the, the, the core of our business model. And uh, what triggered the hybrid uh, project, in addition to what I already described, is really we saw quite early in the transportation sector, electrification was going to take. And when our customers look uh, forward in the coming decade, we'll cut the end pipe emission of a car or a truck. They will, we, we realized very early that their focus very soon turn to materials in their uh, vehicle. So the carbon footprint of steel will be on top of the agenda. We saw this already back in 2015, 2016. And at that time, there were quite a lot of uh, hesitancy in the steel industry, but we were quite clear and the 
our customer base were developing in that direction. So Sweden, if you look at the whole industry value chain, moves, uh, uh, say, a few years or, 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 or a decade ahead of the rest. I think that is quite uh, uh, interesting. If you look at back historically, this part of uh, Europe has always been moving a little bit earlier than others. So this is one aspect. The second is regarding the, the uh, say regulatory framework. And, and that's absolutely true because uh, uh, Sweden was very aggressive in setting the climate goals uh, before the Paris Agreement. So we as a company, even though as I, I introduced in the beginning, that with current technology, we are among the best using the blast furnace technology. We, our emission is much lower than average, but we as a st- company is still the largest CO2 emitting entity in Sweden. So we stand for 10% of the country's CO2 emission. So when the whole society is asking to decarbonize and we become clearly the company that needs to move. So that gave us, uh, of course, also this uh, reason why we were earlier than others to take this uh, question seriously. And so just finishing that, segueing into my, to the one that I did have, which was, um, you know, you've done it, you've proven it can be done, um, you know, and you've, you've overcome all those hurdles. Um, there is something to being able to physically see and touch something that changes people's mindsets. So now that you have fossil-free steel and you've had people build things with fossil-free steel, what's the response been like? You know, has there been a, a mountain of interest from people or is there still a lot of skepticism around this of people sort of going, this is a nice grant study, but we don't believe it's real? Or are you, you know, having people banging down the door going, we'll take every ton of green steel you can give us? How soon can you make it? it yes. Uh, the, the, um, uh, when we started uh, this initiative back in 2016, uh, there were quite a lot of uh, wait and see attitude. Uh, now, when we um, last year made this vehicle together with the Volvo Group, and now we move ahead, and, and we've got uh, overwhelmingly very strong interest from our key customers. Uh, because SCCB is a established steel company, and our, as I mentioned earlier, say, current customer portfolio are really those companies that are in the, uh, in the front edge of their respective business areas. Uh, so they are really driving this uh, decarbonization journey. And now we, we, sh- we have shown that this technically works. The quality of steel is uh, as high as uh, ordinary steel. And this becomes a very strong push from our customers to secure future volumes. So from this current uh, test facility, it's a uh, uh, very little uh, limited volume we can make. So that, that's already gone <laughs> for a long time back. But now it really is targeting our next step of this uh, scale up in 2026. So we see a strong need from our customers. And that is one of the reasons that SACB decided to speed up the acceleration, to accelerate this transformation. Right. That, that leads us very nicely to the, the kind of the final wrap-up question. It's the catch-all. But, you know, thinking about this transformation and transition and the pathway, which, you know, is, is so fast relative to, to, to a lot of other sectors, you know, what does the future hold for the... Um, for the steel industry and, and what role do you, do you see for green steel in, in, in that transition? Yeah, we, we now see that uh, technically this is possible. Uh, initially, uh, this transition uh, might uh, mean 
the production cost uh, under certain period of time might be slightly higher because of uh, technology is still not uh, up, uh, scaled up, uh, economic scale is not there yet, especially uh, in terms of electrolyzer efficiency and production capacity and so on and so on. But we believe that this is the right way to go. Our customers are uh, really uh, uh, extremely interested in, in um, uh, following this uh, path. So in the future, we believe that for a certain period of time, this, uh, what we would call it fossil free steel, some company called the green steel, this will, uh, uh, under period of time, and be lack of supply on the market. It will mean uh, a certain premium. We don't know how much that uh, will be and so on. But in the long run, we believe that once this becomes a real reality, uh, and then this will uh, uh, make, mean a start of a technology shift. And more and more steel companies will go over to this technology, face out the current, say, fossil-based uh, technology. Because in, in reality, every production facility after a certain period of time, will uh, face a serious question uh, whether to make a significant reinvestment in fossil-based technology. So that, that, that will drive the technology shift. So in the long run, this will be, we believe, the standard way to make steel. Uh, so uh, with the time, the cost of CO2 emission will further increase. We have seen this during last year, significant shift in the emission cost. Uh, so to a certain point, it's not a question whether this uh, type of uh, new way to make steel uh, is going to cost more or less. It's, uh, it's really a question of uh, uh, survival of uh, to be still relevant in the business. Martin, thank, thank you very much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure and, and uh, we've really appreciated learning from, from a, an expert and a visionary on this stuff. Um, I can only imagine we're going to hear a lot more from, from our listeners with more questions. So we may have to invite you back at some point in the future, but, but really, really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. Biogas, Biotech's gas-as-a-service option, provides customers with low-cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. Biotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high-pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. Biotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit biotech.us today to get low-cost, low-carbon hydrogen delivered on demand. All right, guys. Well, that was, I will say, an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, I did not know much about the sector and uh, green steel, so I learned a lot. Uh, still learning about what, I still don't know what DRI stands for, but learned about what it is. So that's exciting. Patrick, this was your big uh, guest here. So let's turn it over to you for first impressions. What do you think about what Martin had to say? It's, I, I still think this is a fantastic Fantastic story and fantastic space. DRI, Andrew, is, is direct re reduced iron. Um, All right. So, yeah. I even tried so, to ask Chris in the chat what it meant, and he still didn't answer the question, which was rude, but I get it. <laughs> There's a call out if ever there was one. Well, probably deserved. <laughs> I mean, I basically was like, look, I can't be bothered to explain. Just I'll take that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like, yeah. To be fair to I didn't ask it. I didn't ask him what DRI was. I said I don't know what DRI is, and Chris 
kindly was like, well, let me just take that off your hands. So there we are. But in any event, Patrick, yes, please. So, so look, I, I think, I think there's a few really interesting points here. Like, like number one, you can tell, you can tell this is a, this is a company and an entity that has been looking at this, this question around carbon um, footprint for quite seriously for quite a while by virtue of, you know, I, as Martin mentioned, you know, uh, their average produced ton is about 1.6 um, tons of CO2 compared to an industry standard of closer to two or around two. So you know they have they have certainly the commitment and capabilities to it, and this this is a natural next step, right, in in that pathway. Um, but to the point, actually taking that, commercializing it, building it, and developing it, and then getting it ready to market is a huge undertaking in a in a in a really quite a, a challenging market. So you know it, it's a fant- it's a fantastic project. It's a fantastic effort that they've they've engaged in. Um, things things of note, I think you know. Chris, to one of your questions, you know, like, like, what is the market banging down the door? I, I think there's an interesting story there of the market is skeptical until it's suddenly not, right? And, and this, this is one of those tipping point potential projects that is going to drive demand as people see it be viable and see what the actual price in market for a zero carbon piece of steel is going to be. But probably the fundamental piece that I always come back to and I always find it very interesting is that and Martin mentioned that the, the Swedish government's policy position that they want basically to be zero carbon by 2045 and setting an absolute outright mandate for all industries to decarbonize. Like it effectively started a clock on, on a whole heaps of sectors that produce in Sweden to get moving. And you're seeing the, you're seeing what happens when there's, you know, policy imperative creates, um, creates that space. Industry can catch up pretty quick and move fast. And that's what effective policymaking is, but also it just shows you the talent and the ability of, of people working in these spaces to really drive in, be dynamic and find solutions. If, if anything, this is a story that gives a lot of optimism and hope for, for a lot of our hard to evade sectors. But what, what about you guys? What, what about you, Chris? You know, this, this is obviously kind of relevant as a, as a developer. You're probably licking your chops a little bit at uh, millions of tons of, uh, of hydrogen production. Well, look, I mean, it, it, it's kind of interesting insofar as um, what I hadn't probably thought about enough, but sort of started to come to me and you probably saw in one of the questions at the end is that actually does this uh, move towards green hydrogen um, from electrolysis? Because that's really what we were talking about predominantly in this particular episode, or at least that seemed to be my understanding was that was the sort of focus area, I guess. Does that actually mean that from a geographic perspective, you start to see that the location of steel starts to more closely mirror the same sites that aluminium is manufactured in, right? Because the aluminium game is a power markets game, right? It's where can you get the most consistent, low cost form of power, which typically has been massive hydro, but increasingly massive hydro and wind where you can find the two. So northern Norway, people looking at northern Brazil, Canada, you know, parts of the US, for example. Does this actually mean that steel then starts to go that way too? Because obviously that wasn't the big driver for steel in the past. You know, that wasn't, you know, if people were mostly using coal, actually what you really wanted to be was somewhere near the coast. That was more important because you wanted access to get the, the boats in and out so you can get your your fuel supply. So that that's quite an interesting just more macro bit is do you just actually fundamentally relocate a lot of these assets because you know the, the very profile demand is different? And, and then, of course, what do you do with all those existing steel sites, which are no longer competitive or necessarily well-suited to decarbonize given their current location? And how do you build that new infrastructure for those new locations, for the new process of producing 
fossil free steel. So, so I guess that's quite a massive question. I mean, steel sites are hugely politically significant. They, they're massive job creators. I mean, you know, if you took in the UK Port Talbot, you know, it's not an easy place to do large scale renewables directly there. You could do a lot of offshore wind in the Celtic Sea, for example, you know, electrolysis um, into somewhere like um, Dragon LNG, which is uh, in the west of the UK um, in Pembrokeshire. And then you could basically pipeline it in. But that's that is rebuilding the entire plumbing and energy system of South Wales to keep that site viable under that kind of model. Um, so it, I think that's quite an interesting theme to come out of some of this and makes sense, right? That that is a question that is coming out of it. Um, but it's just something I hadn't really probably put two and two together and thought about. And then I guess the only other bit here is that, you know, training perspective, the number of people you have to train up to understand this process too. You know, this is a massive re-education of an enormous workforce to understand how to do all of these things and for the regulators to figure out how to do all of this. And so, you know, actually getting people up to speed with that is quite difficult. And to do it at the pace we need to decarbonize, you almost feel like how, you know, in in normal terms, SSAB would be rewarded for being a first mover by having that internal knowledge and keeping that competitive advantage for a long time and others would have to try and figure out what they did if we're trying to get to a net zero world where we actually need everyone to be adopting this and learning as fast as possible from everyone else how do you create an environment that encourages them to share the knowledge and insights of that as freely as possible and some of that i think is the swedish government subsidizing part of this and making some of the information publicly available but it's such a profound issue with steel in a way that it's perhaps less profound for some of the other types of industries because it's such a massive source of energy demand. It's such a big source of emissions. And fundamentally, it comes down to actually quite a few sites. I mean, it's not thousands or hundreds of thousands of sites. It's in the low hundreds of sites worldwide that we really have to change. So I thought all of that was super interesting and probably something I hadn't really reflected on enough. And I think that's a, I think those are excellent points. I think the geography point is particularly interesting, Chris, but there's also, there's something I wanted to touch on that Patrick has mentioned this a lot in the past, but I think, uh, I don't remember the numbers Patrick threw around and maybe those numbers have changed, but I think worth revisiting. And we touched on it with Martin and you were just ending on it there, Chris, which is, this is a huge, huge amount of energy demand for this man- for manufacturing processes here that means consequently a huge amount of hydrogen so patrick I, I i don't want to put you too much on the spot although that's exactly what i'm doing but as you may recall we've talked about this a lot in the past you've talked about uh what kind of numbers we're talking about for decarbonizing steel production broadly do you do you remember those off the top of your head? Can we go down that road just to give the listeners and, and myself and, and possibly Chris, although I'm sure Chris knows this as well, but what those numbers and volumes look like? So, so if you go through a, a, a DRI pathway uh, directly right now, so you've got about 1,850-ish million metric tons of steel produced um, per annum. As Martin rightly said, I think he said around, uh, I think it was 100 million metric tons of that is... Um, you know, scrap recycled through electric arc furnaces so to look that off. But you've got 17, you know, you've got a huge billion, nearly 2 billion tons of steel. You need directionally, depending on the the ore qualities and, and you know, whether it's magnetite, hematite, right? You're going to need something, I think it's in the range of like 54 to 64 kilograms of hydrogen per ton of crude steel produced. Do you, do you want the FT numbers? Sure. So there was an article in the FT in November 2020 on LKAB, which is 
the Swedish state-owned miner and sort of basically trying to decarbonize that iron ore. They gave a figure which was absolutely huge, which I think we've probably referred to in the past because it's so big. They said to transform to green hydrogen, their site in Scandinavia would be 53 terawatt hours for um, for that part of the iron ore side. And that's the downstream, I guess, of the SSAB. So it's a big number, 40, 43 billion of investment to make that happen just for their site alone. 47 billion, sorry. And, and the takeaway from this is when people ask about the scale or relevance of hydrogen technologies, this is one sector. And the volumes we're talking about is are absolutely enormous. The pathway is absolutely enormous. And and critically, this is, I think directly, it's eight and a half, nine percent of global emissions that we're trying to get rid of in one step. So, you know, this is what it means. It has huge implications for every industry that consumes any steel. It has a huge implications for people's daily lives. And that's why this is truly a, a really, really important uh, piece of the puzzle. Excellent. All right, guys. Well, we are drawing short on time. We covered a lot with Martin on the call about this sector. So we'll let his words speak for himself for themselves here. And uh, I think this is a really, really incredible, uh, incredible space. This is a uh, Martin was an outstanding guest. So uh, thanks, Patrick, for bringing him on. And uh, yeah, well, this is a good one, guys. We'll chat again soon. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Dr. Martin Pei, Executive Vice President and CTO at SSAB, for joining us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.